0: Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Arielle Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guests. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Chris Fisher. He's the founder of Osearch. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I want to get started by discussing your intersection to the watch world because um, what you do is not part of horology, but you are a type of company that brands love to work with. And the Swiss watchmaker Ulysses Nardon has been a sponsor of uh, Osearch for a a couple of years. I guess the question that I want to begin with is, what exactly do you do with Ulysses Nardon?
1: Well, Un, you know their history and roots go deep back into the ocean space with some of the original chronographs, and they've always had the ocean as a big component of their brand. And when when our worlds came together was when they were doing some watches that had to do with sharks. They wanted to support shark research. Osearch is the world's leading great white shark research program, uh, and the reason that we work on the sharks and came together with them is we just know from science around the world if we have healthy shark populations. There's lots of fish in the sea for our kids to see and and food for the future. And we have an operating ocean that's providing us our air and our water. So the path to abundance and an ocean full life for our kids goes through these large sharks. The sharks were in trouble. They still are in many parts of the world, and we needed the information to be able to manage them back. So we had to go do the research on the water. And that's what uh, UN came together with OSIRS to really help with this research um, and do something great for the ocean while they're making you know beautiful watches that are associated with diving and and shark conservation.
0: I want to spend a big part of this conversation talking about science and specifically what it is that ostrich does. But before that, I want to spend time on the conversation as relevant to luxury marketers because you know, I've been, doing watch industry stuff for about 16 years now. And I've noticed that brands really love to find nonprofits or interesting organizations, whether they're doing science or culture or whatever, like yourself. And they just love it so much. And obviously, it's, it's mutually beneficial. It's a lovely symbiotic relationship where individuals like yourself get to do uh, you know, good work. Talk a little bit about, in today's society, the synergy of companies – you listen on it otherwise, an organization such as yourself where you're you're helping each other out, you're offering something that uh, that you can't provide on your own. I, I'm just I'm interested in that interesting synergy that exists out there. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, I think it all begins with it really being somewhat market-driven by the consumers. You know, we're in this era of conscious capitalism, we're in this era of conscious consumers who, you know, if they have choices to buy things. They want to buy the thing that is also doing some good for the future, hopefully for the planet or for their family or for people. And so when it comes into the kind of cause marketing space, I think you see brands all over doing a lot of different things. Some of them are just greenwashing, you know, and they give a little money and they get their logo put up on a website. A lot of that. That's a lot of that. 90% of the companies do. But there's about 10% of the companies that really want to do something. And they integrate the content into their branding. It's part of who the organization is. They don't just make whatever they make. They make that product and they do good in the space in which they operate. Did you go to Watches and Wonders by any chance? No, I've never been there. So (laughs) this is a big trade show.
0: And the reason I bring it up is exactly what you're talking about, sort of brands integrated into their marketing. There was this huge kind of geometric shark that Ulysses Ardan put in their exhibit, and a lot of their marketing had sharks and stuff like that. And at the exact same time they were making that, they were talking about you, and they were so excited. And I I, I don't know exactly how it happened if they were thinking of sharks beforehand, but the fact that they were working with Osearch, to them, validated their use of these shark images in a, in a sort of very impactful way, which, again, it's, it's sharks are cool. It's a marketing image. But now they're actually feeling like they can more legitimately uh, put these up in terms of their, their marketing. Uh, did they tell you about this?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we knew that they were they had a history with sharks in their line prior to coming to O-Search. And, and FX, you know, who leads the North American part of their operation, did a lot of research into what organizations are, are working on sharks around the world. And he came to us, which was... One of, you know, it's, it's a real privilege, you know, when someone looks around and just evaluates your work and selects you. And and um, and so, you know, we were interested in coming together with them. We wanted to make sure it was real. They've been out on a lot of expeditions. They've helped with the science. So here they are talking about sharks, creating awareness with their product and at the same time funding the very work on the water to uh, improve the condition for sharks around the world. So this is a brand that's walking the walk. About 10% of them do that. They really are invested in the future and they integrate that into who they are and their brand. And in what a group like O-Search does, and I think a relationship like that does is in this world of conscious consumers, it provides the social license to operate and say, hey, I'm walking the walk, I'm, I'm doing what I say. Um, and that is really what I think will be the foundation of the path to abundance for the whole planet is when consumers continue to build basing their choices around the brands that are actually doing things to create a bright future for kids. As, as more and more do that, brands will be more and more driven into the space because the more good they do, the better bit their business will be. I I agree with you.
0: And a question, I think, which is imperative is what recommendations can you give for the consumer to determine the difference between those companies who, as you said, are walking the walk and those who are just doing the greenwashing? Because consumers obviously want to support companies that are Legitimately involved in those causes, not just buying a, a label or a tag, like you said. What are some tips you can give to people from the outside to say, does a company really
1: care about this, or are they just buying a good look? Well, you can see it when they're really when they're really invested in it. It's kind of spread out and riddled through their brand.
0: So you're saying that it, it really looks. It, look at the level of involvement. Is it just a tag somewhere, or are they doing stuff? Right.
1: It's part of who they are. When they're greenwashing. You just basically see like logos on websites. You know what I okay, mean? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then you don't really see it as an active component of their social programs, their branding programs, you know, they're they're talking about it. Like, like the proof is in the fact that you were talking to FX about UN and he kept talking about OSearch. You know, so it's yeah, they're living it. You know, it's, it's part of the brand and you can see it across the brand. You can see that with most all of our partners. And so it'll be in their social programs. It'll be on their posters. It'll be in the collateral around their products. Though Every time there's a, a podcast or a, a news article, they'll comment about it in it. And, and when you see UN, they're doing actually several great things uh, around the ocean space not just with us on the research side. You know, they're helping veterans return to the water. And, you know, the commitment is real, right? It's who the brand is. It's what they're about. And you can feel that when you get to know a brand. You can also just look a few things up online if you're highly motivated. I
0: just think it's an interesting situation because for consumers, now the presumption is it's greenwashing, right? It's... It, it, it yeah. used to be that oh, it's really cool they're doing that. Now it's like oh, they're just they're just trying to buy goodwill. It's yeah. like brands yeah. have to be into it and then also convince everyone that they're into it.
1: Well, yeah, and one of the unique things O Search brings is our brand. You know, we have 26 billion earned media and digital impressions a year worldwide because of the Great White Sharks. Right, we're the world leader in the space, and. And people can track them in real time. So every time they pop up there, there's a huge social conversation around it and a lot of earned media around it. So what we tried to do was said, hey, you know, for all you social responsible brands out there, we get it. We have a more entrepreneurial approach to the nonprofit space. We understand content, we understand connectivity, we understand brand integration, and we're big enough to tell the world what great things you're doing so you don't have to talk about it yourself, right? No, it's way better for someone to say, hey, UN's doing these great things. They've been supporting us for years. We're pioneering work that's gonna make sure all our great grandkids can eat food. And, uh, and, and and millions or billions of people hear that. It's another thing for a brand to say it about themselves and their own marketing collateral, right? So it's, uh, it's good to bring some scale to the conversation. It's good to modernize the space for brands to make it actually have value for them.
0: It's a great time to be a, a company like Osearch because what you do is in such demand. And it's interesting that you have to equally put effort into being a legitimate scientific research organization while at the same time having this significant, we'll call it marketing or communication arm, which traditionally research firms did not have or do very well, right?
1: Yeah, but the reason why we developed expertise in that space is we knew when we started this journey that in the end, if we're really gonna deliver something amazing to the future, that it was gonna take us all anyway. So you have to be able to communicate. There wasn't like an angle like, oh, we're going to create some content and brand integrate and and create value and monetize that value to fund the ship so we can give it to the scientists. I mean, that's kind of functionally what's going on. But the spirit behind the content creation began with creating awareness about what's going on in the ocean, because in the end, it's going to take us all to really Pull this off. It's not going to be one organization that's going to save the world for our kids. It's going to be everybody becoming aware of various issues and, you know, participating in a reasonably efficient lifestyle while their time is on the planet here and then delivering uh, uh, something nice to the future. So our content journey really began because our core value was inclusion. And the way we included people was by pushing content in real time across social platforms as it occurred so people could feel like they were on the water tagging the shark with us. And then as soon as it's released, it goes up on the tracker and they're tracking it in real time on the Osearch app with the scientists. It was like this totally inclusive research project that's the most charismatic research project on the ocean in the world right now. I mean, we're solving the life history of the nine great white shark populations around the world so we can bring them back because we know if we can do that, all of those areas will be abundant and have fish for the future and we'll have an operating ocean. Most people don't think about two-thirds of our air and 100% of our water comes from the ocean and several billion people per day, it's their protein. So like, if that system is not operating properly, there is no life for us on land. It's 70% of the planet. So, so if the white sharks are the system manager, they are the apex predator. So yeah. we know if we get their populations thriving in each one of these nine populations, that those regions of the world will be thriving at every level in the food chain. So I want to describe a
0: little bit about what Osterge does to those who don't quite understand it. And and I'd love your comment as well first on sharks as being, a, I guess they call it a keystone species, whereas because, as you said, they're an apex predator, if there is a failure in that ecosystem, uh, the easiest way to identify it is to say what's going on with the apex predator. Apex predator is healthy. That means there's plenty to feed on, which tends to mean the ecosystem is healthy If the if the apex predator is diminishing or moving. That ostensibly means that there's problems with an ecosystem. Talk a little bit more about uh, the role that sharks have as a a keystone species.
1: Yeah. So when you think about a shark, the simple way kind of just to frame the beginning of the conversation is you got to think about the lions of Africa or the wolf of Yellowstone, the top of the food chain. So these apex predators, when they move through the system, whether it's on land or at sea, everything in the system knows they're there everything's behavior is affected, right? Whether it's hiding behind a rock or just sitting still as they move by or fleeing. So their presence in the ocean and moving around the ocean and they have massive ranges, right? So off our east coast of the United States, our white shark population ranges all the way from Newfoundland, Canada, around the tip of Florida and across the Gulf of Mexico. And they make that journey every year across that entire range. And that's why to your point, if your white sharks are covering that entire range and their populations are improving, then you know the general health of the ocean is strong because they're moving across the whole area and they're doing fine. Um, And so as they move through these systems, yes, they consume various different types of fish, a lot of marine mammal, you know, seals during the summer and fall, the consumption doesn't shape the system as much as their mere presence because their presence affects the behavior of everything and it falls in line. So, for example, most people think, oh, wow, um, the white sharks, they move up north and they eat a lot of seals. And we do see our white sharks and I can go through our East Coast whole white shark life history if you want to describe their life in, in the midst of this conversation. But for this particular point, when those white sharks move up into our northeastern United States and Atlantic Canada, they do eat some seals and that affects the situation. And I'll describe that in a moment. But the big thing they do is just being there in healthy numbers Because we know one white shark swimming up and down the beach can keep thousands of seals stuck on the beach. They won't get in the water just because that one shark is present because they know they could get taken. So they sit on the beach until they're almost starving and then they get in the water, they get a little bit of food and then they get back out. If that white shark is not there, we know that all of those seals will eat four times more per day. And that means they wipe out our lobster, they li- wipe out the stripers, the cod, the menhaden, and then there's no fish for us. So their primary job is to be present and affect that behavior of all those seals. And in essence, they're guarding our fish stocks. They're like cops. Yes, they're very much like cops. They are guards. They guard our fish stocks. They pre- they, their presence scares the seals enough. It changes their behavior. They stay on the beach like they're so, supposed to. If that white shark's not there, they're all out in the water and they are wiping out the system and us and our kids are going hungry. That's the bottom line. And so uh, they do the same thing when they're southern latitudes, their mere presence prevents the squid every night. In the southern latitudes, when the squid migrate up to the surface of the water, the sharks keep them down. The presence of the sharks, because sharks eat a lot of squid, Um, and if those sharks aren't there, those squid come to the surface and then they eat all of our baby fish. They eat all the fry, all the baby tuna, all the baby mahi, all the baby billfish, all the baby cobia, all the baby stuff. We need to grow up so that there's food for us.
0: So there's people that misunderstand this and they think that if there's too many sharks, it'll destroy animal populations.
1: Yeah. It's always interesting when people say, oh, the sharks are moving in near the beach because there's a lot of fish. You're like, oh, no, there's a lot of fish because of the sharks. Yeah,
0: I mean, that, that, that makes sense. I just You're right there on the ground level hearing what people's perceptions are that are not necessarily scientifically based, maybe sort of like common sense based. And you're right, right. those things don't uh, necessarily intersect unless you actually observe an environment in practice. Um,
1: not a lot of these things are intuitive, right? Right. And so, you know, to, to help people understand it. So let's talk about something people get their head around real easily, like a terrestrial example, a land example. Yellowstone, they did this experiment, right? Where they reintroduced the wolves a decade or two ago. Right, And when the wolves, just the mere presence of the wolves, when they came back, it forced all the deer and the elk to bed down and hide all day. And for decades, they hadn't had to do that. And the forest never came back. Soon as the wolves were there and the deer and the elk had to hide all day and could only feed at night, The forest was able to come back because they couldn't feed 24 hours a day and wipe out every little tree that was trying to come up. Once the forest came back, everything that lives in the forest came back. Every bird, every critter, every bug you could imagine. And then eventually, as the trees grew back, the beavers came back into the rivers and started dropping trees again and created swamps. Then all the waterfowl came back, the reptiles came back, the ducks came back, and, and then the river was no longer washing out every year because the the deer and the elk weren't overgrazing on the sides of the banks. The banks firmed up. They went back to their historic route, and the total aggregate abundance of the of the park skyrocketed, because the wolf was back. The apex predator was there and healthy, and that is exactly what the shark does in the ocean. the The white shark is the wolf.
0: That makes a, a lot of sense. I want to speak very practically about the work that you do. You have to go out there and using a boat, you find and you tag individual specimens and then you, you let them on their way and then you track them. Once they're, they're tagged and, and, and stuff like that, that's a whole interesting conversation. But the actual process of finding animals and tagging them, like, do you use radar? I've just always been
1: curious, like, how do you find these animals to begin with? So there's different times of the year to try to find white sharks. And there's definitely easier and more difficult times. But before we get into that, the real biggest difference of what OCEARCH has done, that has done all these things that so many people said was impossible. And it was very, very simple. Our biggest challenge moving forward in the ocean to make sure it's in good shape is data deficit and time. We don't have the data to manage back and we're running out of time. And at the same time, the way that the science works in the ocean space in the research area, all of these scientists typically work alone or in a very small group because they're all competing. They have this word for it. They call they say publish or perish. Right. Which which means whoever is the most prolific publisher typically wins the grant game and gets funded and can make a living and do their work. Mm -hmm. This is the system, right? So what that system did was it forced All of the scientists into individual silos competing against each other, trying to develop their own individual capacity to get out and do the work, which they couldn't. The scientists have no boats, no money, and don't know how to catch what they study. They have no time on the water. Yet there was this... Capitalism meets academics, right? Right. Yeah, it's like a joke. They're tasked with an impossible task. They have to write these research papers. In order to do that, they got to collect data on the water. So they got to know how to operate on the water, but they have no idea. They're scientists. Right. And so, and not only that, they're not even big groups of scientists coming together to try to pool their resources so they can develop some reasonable capacity to answer some big questions. So they're all forced into these little silos. They're all going out in their 25-foot whaler with their intern. And you know if they tried to do the type of work we do, they'd get killed. So why do people and say it's so impossible? What we did, so what we did was, we're like, this is absurd. I come from a space where my journey on the water began in the late 90s. I, I'm a, I studied international entrepreneurship, focusing on Asia and the Pacific Rim and worked in that space until 97. The company I worked for was sold. I grew up in Kentucky chasing fish and frogs around the woods was a crazed waterman. I'm like, I'm going to do something in the water space. Cousteau had passed away. No one was building toward giving the ocean back a booming centrist voice. All we had were voices on the fringe, screaming either the sky is falling or I want to take them all. And the answer's in the middle, right? And Cousteau was gone. The ocean lost its voice. So I benchmark his life. And I was young enough and dumb enough, I was 29 years old, I'm like, I am going to build an enterprise to pour the world's oceans into people's lives at a scale unseen since Cousteau. Because if people don't know what's going on out there, they don't care. And if they don't care, they don't want to affect change. So everything's about awareness. Well, tell the young people,
0: what was Cousteau like? Very few people now, especially the younger generations, maybe they know his name, but they don't know what he did or how he was present to the mainstream. I
1: mean, it's stunning to me that most people under the age of about 45 don't know who Cousteau was. Cousteau invented the lung, scuba diving. And he, for the first time, delivered the underwater ocean to the world in these specials he made. And he did 22 expeditions around the world, you know, showing people because the scuba diving was new and the first underwater cameras And he poured the world's oceans into people's lives and people became fascinated with the ocean. And And they wanted to protect it now that they knew what it was. Yeah, and he was a master storyteller. Um, And yeah, it was all to try to give the ocean a voice so we could make sure we had an abundant future for the ocean. He knew then, like, look, if the ocean's not thriving, we're dead on land.
0: And what are some of the manifestations that came of it? Because you said that now the public had the, the views of underwater on their television screens. They had this charismatic French personality speaking about, you know, with huge passion for under the water. And you said you sort of wanted to, to, to keep it going. Talk a little bit about, you know, what you think that is meant to achieve and, and, and your strategy
1: there. So I benchmarked his life. He led 22 expeditions. He was pouring the world's oceans into like a billion peoples uh, back then, which was really hard, so few outlets. And he was a, a reasonable voice. And in the ocean space right now, you have these people screaming on the fringes. You what know, are they the, saying? Well, the total preservationist is saying no one should touch anything on the water. Not practical, right? That's not a path that's going to work for people. Right. We got we to eat. People need jobs. You know, then you got the poacher who wants to take them all, right? So you got I got the preservationist and the poacher. And so they're both just as bad for the ocean. You know, the preservationists, they think they're a saint. But they're so position oriented. They know they offer no practical solutions. So we can make centrist practical. They I mean, let's gridlock. not do anything, folks. Is yeah, usually gridlock. not an answer to stuff. Yeah. They create gridlock in downward trending situations, right? You're and they create off-
0: they cause doubt because you know, as as a species, we have to make decisions all the time. Not making a decision is not an option. And they create this doubt of like everyone can get away with doing
1: nothing, which I don't think is true. Which I think you agree with. Oh, totally, especially in a downward trending environment. So you've just basically decided to hold your position until it's over, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously the one who wants to take them all is not practical either. So, so Cousteau was this booming voice in the middle and, you know, that you could have a commonsensical conversation with about some practical paths where people don't always get everything they want, but they get some of what they want. But the main thing is we reverse the trends, Right. We can talk about accelerating the trends later, but we got to at least turn the corner so we're no longer declining. Even if, we're, even if we're moving in the right direction at a very slow pace, at least we're moving in the right direction. And so I felt like when Cousteau was gone, that was lost. And you, I don't think people remember, you know, when Cou- Cousteau was happening, we were all talking about the ocean, then he passed away and it was over and nobody was talking about the ocean in the late 90s. Nobody was talking about the ocean in between 2000 and 2010. And we were all out there, many groups. Plastic is crazy. We're seeing it everywhere. We were all, you know, seeing it in the late 90s and early. And then suddenly around 2017 or 16, when Blue Planet came out, it was like the tipping point of, of so many organizations around the world creating awareness about marine debris and plastics and we went over the awareness tipping point. Right now, everyone's aware of it. Everyone's talking about it. Entrepreneurship, nonprofits, people have risen up and they're tackling the problem. And, 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 we, and I believe we've solved that problem simply because the awareness level is at a scale now that while we haven't actually cleaned it up yet, the amount of energy and money and people focused on it means us we're on the path toward cleaning it up. I have
0: a question, and I'm so glad you speak about this with so much passion because I, I'm also very interested in it. One of the things that companies have gotten away with for a long time, which kind of surprises me, is pushing the onus of environmental protection on the consumer. And the example I'll give you is like, let's say, your average plastic bottle. Yeah, don't The think company started, will though. happily produce a bottle that cannot decompose and whatever. And they put the onus, on the consumer. Hey, consumer, after buying this thing, it's your responsibility to get rid of it properly. Um, what is because happening- Because on- a toxic
1: substance that will never go away. Yeah,
0: so it's like, where's the movement on companies um, yeah, being able a, to- this is
1: a great question, man. Yeah. So you think about what goes on the water. This great group, waterkeepers keepers, been around forever, heavy in litigation. But what they did was they ran around and when they found factories- that were polluting waterways, they sued them and they forced them to clean up the waterways and they forced them to clean up their discharge because those companies were not consuming the true cost of their business. The true cost of their business requires them to clean up everything that comes out so that the public doesn't have to pay to clean it up. So what you have with all of these organizations that are using these plastic bottles is they're not, they are not consuming the true cost of their business. They are passing on the cleaning up of their business to the public. And for us to go raise money to clean up their mess. It's, it's, it's a strange state of affairs. It's, 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 if, if they were pumping you know, water into a creek, they would go down immediately. It's a little bit different delivery and no one's kind of picking it up because there's a couple dots you got to connect.
0: Yeah, but and and one of the things we've tried to do is push this un you know this, this unclean industrial behavior uh, further and further away from developed countries, but since we all share the oceans. If as long as it's happening on Earth, it's going to affect everyone, we're no longer in a position where the Earth seems large enough where we can sort of uh, uh, shove this under the rug. Like It's it's <laughs> there no matter where it happens, right? Yeah,
1: you know what they used to say back in the day, like in the 70s, they thought the ocean, what they set, used to say, they used to say the solution is dilution. They used to say <laughs> you could just the ocean is so big you can just pour it in and it'll dilute it. Well, we I mean, now know that
0: that is not the case. Imagine you made that argument with greenhouse gases. Like, like well?
1: <laughs> yeah. So the, there is a disconnect here about organizations taking care of the true cost of their business and not passing it on to the public to clean it up. When people will connect those dots... I think it's happened to a lot of people already. It's slowly beginning, you know, and and it just slowly grows. It's part of awareness. Um, Because like I do things, it's so easy to play these games with yourself. And I don't want to go too on and on. But like I go on a lot of little business trips and I'll go on a little business trip and I'll take my Yeti cup with me and I'll be like, I am not going to produce one plastic cup or bottle on this entire four day trip. It's actually pretty easy. But and, you but you still don't make that much of a dent, right? Like at the no, end of the no, day, what, what, what I'm the system is like it, set up against you. <laughs> it's not, it, yeah, the system, but it's not that hard. What you're really talking about is individual accountability and the modification of a few of our habits, which is what it's going to take. Because I, then-, then I, the, I hear you. The market I, will shrink, yeah. I'll give you my perspective on it.
0: And again, and after that, let's talk about uh, fun animals because people like talking about that. I, I, I think that consumers are very predictable and people will go with the path of least resistance. I think that trying to get consumers to do the more complicated, more expensive, more difficult thing is much more difficult in the long run than just giving them better options. I'd rather people have better options available to them than, say, you know, you have I just agree. mostly bad options, I agree,
1: that with, options that. Have I agree with that, but now you're nurturing this era where nobody wants to be accountable. Okay. I can see that. I, I, know, both, I, I agree look, with that. Here's I, the deal. I look at myself and I look at the wake of garbage I create and I hold myself accountable for that wake of garbage. And so it is so easy to like cut your wake of garbage by half. Half of it is just like awareness. Okay,
0: you're right. You have to to be aware of what you're doing. And uh, so again, let's let's go back to awareness. The reason
1: why I'm so intense about this point around accountability is we've entered this era where everybody wants everyone else to save them or everyone wants everyone else to not put them in a position to make a bad decision instead of holding themselves accountable for making bad decisions. If we're gonna create an abundant future, we are going to have to bring back accountability to the individual. And that only goes down with you and the person you stare at in the mirror.
0: Is that a leadership issue? If we have leaders that profess uh, personal accountability, we tend to have that. If we have leaders that say, it's not your fault, you're all victims, then people tend to feel that way.
1: I think society tends to nurture, it's not your fault, you're a victim. I don't know, you know, I definitely think it needs to be some sort of leadership. People need to take pride in themselves. I, 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 I agree. You know, and so... It's a complicated issue. And it's like a difficult conversation that no one wants to have, but improves everyone's life.
0: Well, that's what—that's where nonprofits come in, right? You do the, you do the things people don't, uh, other people necessarily want to do or you can't build a business around. And then you tell everyone, remind them how freaking important it is. You know, we need to keep doing this. And that's, that's sort of a, but, but a, a why combination can't, being why, a why,
1: why, diplomacy. Can't we, yeah, why, can't, well, why can't we build businesses whose product is doing good? Why can't we build brands and people consume things associated with that brand and fund the very work that's going to allow their grandkids. Easy, easy to answer.
0: Consumers put their money where it makes them feel good. And you admitted this is a difficult conversation. You yeah, have to make true. it so people feel good by putting money here. And that's that's been the problem with a lot of nonprofit organizations. They remind people about very unpleasant topics. That's why you have so many of them like yours that that hinge so much on the animal element, because people just love animals. The bigger thing you're doing is a is a is a difficult story to tell. And you've brilliantly turned it into something which is a little bit more palatable for your
1: average uh funder. Yes. Consumable for everyone. Yeah. In the nonprofit space, it's interesting you talked about it because we got big problems in the nonprofit space. Yeah. I mean, I think people need to really look close at whoever they're playing in the nonprofit space with. Because the big problem is, number one, in the ocean space, half of the nonprofits are in the midst, unknowingly, of like a psyop against our young children. What do you mean? I speak to college kids, high school kids, grade school kids all the time. I got teachers coming up to me saying, hey, these college kids here, they don't even think they really need to worry about their college education or doing anything or building a business or building a family because the sky is falling. The earth's going to end. Interesting. And and you know why they do that? It's because in the nonprofit space, the cash only flows when the sky is falling. And so the hilarious thing about this right now, and particularly if you look around the United States and what's going on on our east and west coasts, there are more fish in our ocean right now than since the 40s. We are winning. We are we have rewilded our oceans and part mm. of that is this white shark work along with excellent management moves over the last 50 years. And right now like off the east coast of the United States, there's more fish, more life and we're seeing things that people haven't seen since the 40s or 50s. It's unbelievable. It is be turning into one of the great wild oceans again. And the Pacific Ocean is trending the same way off our coasts, might be two, three years behind in trend, but booming. Talk to the people who work on the water. Talk to the people who are out there, the management, the fishing. It's unbelievable what's going on on our east and west coast. But that story doesn't make the cash flow. So the sky's always falling. They're freaking out the kids. The yeah. kids don't think there's a bright future. They're not motivated. It's wrong. It's wrong on so many levels. Number one, it's inaccurate. Number two, they're destroying these kids. I mean, what happened to the time? What happened to the time when the grownups handled the problems and let the kids be the kids?
0: Like when now the grownups like, knew what to do.
1: Yeah, now we're, now we're dragging kids into climate change. We're listening. Come on, man. Like, let's, let's have the grown-ups step up. Let's make a plan. Let's let the kids be kids and let's deliver them a fantastic place.
0: Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by Brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit eBay.com/slash-certified-by-brand for more information. I'll tell you something funny. So we're both parents, and I was reading my son something from the late 1980s, and it was talking exactly about climate change, uh, Earth getting hotter, uh, the 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 you know natural resources going away, and how adults a kid's book. Are Past, yeah, this is this, this, this actually Calvin and Hobbes. I was, I was reading Calvin and Hobbes from the late 1980s and, uh, you know, adults and kids. But they were talking about how children now have to inherit this. The adults screwed it up and now children have to inherit this. Now, a generation later, yeah. we're the exact same thing. We're now my sons about what my age was back then. And we're now the adults are like, sorry, we tried to fix it. We screwed up. Here's the earth in even worse shape. Hopefully you do better, and and now we're it like old enough really, to see the path in the it Really,
1: that's the question. I, well, I that's, mean, that's 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 the perception. That's the perception. Our oceans are teeming with life. Off our east life, coast. yes,
0: but they're, but they're also warming up. And my my question is, you work with a lot of the scientists.
1: What are they saying is going to be some of the outcomes of these warming oceans? Nobody really knows. You know, nobody really knows. You know, it's like things like a white shark. People ask me all the time. Does it affect the movement of the white shark? These white sharks, man, we track them in water that's like upper 80s all the way down to freezing cold water, 32 degrees water. A, a pivot of a fraction of one degree is not going to affect them. I mean, they're, they're
0: not so- that sensitive. These This species, millions and millions of years old, they are durable enough to swim in
1: slightly different temperatures. They've endured tougher times than we're experiencing now. And they've thrived. And so... So this is a tough. This is a, this is a conversation that really, though, sums back to the kids. Like, this is not regardless of whether or not what's going on or what's going to happen or whatever. This is about grownups handling grownup problems and letting kids be kids and not destroying their life with some sort of PSYOP, starting with their children's books.
0: I, I no I I agree there needs to be messages about what can be done about it as opposed to a lot of fear. I think there used to be more of that. Now I'm not sure if people know what to say other than be afraid, right? I I, I think that people like yourself that have the legitimate optimistic messages are are a bit few and far between.
1: Well, I can tell you what, I'm excited about the future here in the United States of America off our east and west coasts. I'm telling you, it is the model for the world. And if we could get other people and show them how we did it, we could turn around. The rest of the world so let's let's talk about
0: the the sort of the day-to-day of what you do at osearch you have a fleet of fish sharks and 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 other creatures i believe as well i think there's some turtles and some other large fish who have these tags and they're going around and there's ostensibly two types of data there's data about what the animal themselves are doing and then there's probably data about the the water
1: uh, and the environment those are the two principal types of data that you're collecting right yeah, well, we do 25 research projects on every shark. So that's just the tracking stuff. That's not the reproductive stuff, the human health medical stuff, all the toxicology work, all the bacteria work and so forth. So yeah, there's 25 research projects done on every animal. Why? Because our challenge is data deficit. To go back to the conversation I was telling you about, all these individually siloed scientists with their little boats, right? So what we did was, I have a guy who's been working on the water with me. His name's Captain Brett McBride. He's the most gifted water man I've ever met. And I have a team of world-class practical salty guys and a ship. And so instead of all those scientists doing their own individual thing, getting nowhere, they can't answer any big questions. They have no capacity. Nobody's there giving them capacity. We build this operation where we can deliver these massive animals to them and they can stand next to them for 15 minutes And they can do all the science that's never been done to solve the puzzle of their life so that we can help them where they're mating and help them where they're giving birth and look after the nursery in their full range. And so what we did was, and we disrupted this old individual way, we developed a capacity no one else in the world has, which is deliver these large sharks in a safe place for these scientists for 15 minutes. And we give that capacity the ship the skills of captain brett mcbride and dj lettery and christian purcell these are salty guys it's no problem for them to bring a 4000 pound white shark back to a team of scientists what they can't do is they can't write a peer-reviewed paper (laughs) now what we have is we have these scientists over here they're not collaborating well maybe since it's the only place in the world you can stand next to one. We can disrupt that and force collaboration. This is, goes back to 2007, 8, 9, 10, when they didn't want to collaborate. Now they all collaborate. They're totally into it because we proved the model. What does this cost the scientists and researchers? Is this free to them? Zero. We give, they have no money. They have no right. boats, and they don't know how to catch what they study to collect data. So you're so, a quality data provider in, in, in a sense. We are the world leader in quality data for ocean management around our apex predators. And so, and so what we did was we brought the practical, the world-class watermen, together with the academic. We got the academics to collaborate. So instead of having one scientist on a project, we have 49 researchers from 24 different research organizations, institutions, doing 25 research projects on every animal we touch. So all these institutions
0: use your data for their
1: way their means and That's you are right. sit- Yeah. But we are the data creators, right? Our collectors. No matter what happens, if you don't catch one and you don't put one next to them, they get nothing. And so over the years for some reason as technologies improved, we've lost the gratitude and appreciation for world-class practical expertise. But without these guys on the water delivering the sharks, there's no science. Zero data. And what we did, and those two communities used to not trust each other. The fishermen don't like the scientists. The scientists don't got the fishermen. I'm like, guys, our great-grandkids got no more time for this silliness. Right? We need to get on a common. You're right. Scientists here.
0: thought the fishermen were the enemy when it didn't really work that way.
1: Did they love it the most? They love yeah. it more than the scientists. They're out there every day. They want their kids to be able to see it full of life, to see what they saw or better. So fishermen should be leading the you know,
0: It's, it's a little bit different, but I'll give you an example. I it's think like you'll appreciate hunter. this from, from, yeah, with hunters. In California here, hunters have a very bad rap. But if you speak to hunters, you recognize they care more about environmental preservation. They're not out there being like, I'm going to kill every animal I can see. They, they're not really the enemy. They actually end up caring more than your, your, your layperson. Anyone
1: who doesn't acknowledge that the hunters saved the forest is emotionally invested in some other agenda. I I I I hear I hear what you're saying the hunter saved the forest. The duck hunters saved the ducks, the trout fishermen saved the trout. You know, that's how it works. I don't yeah. nobody else is really doing much, quite frankly. And so we got the whole thing's backward. Who you think is helping is not, and who you don't is. So some of
0: the guys as part of your organization they feel like they have the world's best job because they get to basically do what they love to do and have a uh, a scientific benefit. It's like fishing, professionally fishing for fun and for the good of the world, kind of, right?
1: Yeah, there's not really a lot of fun involved in it. I mean, if you want to go fishing for fun, you go down to Panama and you bait and switch black marlin at the Tropic Star Lodge. <laughs> okay, so that's know, the way to do it, not sharks. You freeze your ass off waiting for a white shark to come by. Um, but is it necessary? Must it be done? Yes. <laughs> Fun? No. So the one thing I got to give up, you get a guy like Captain Brett McBride. He's been on the water with me for, well, I've lost track, or late 90s. This guy could be on any shiny white boat he wants in the world. Fishing out of some fancy marina on some mega super yacht with a billionaire owner. Chasing giant marlin around. But he chooses to fish for our children on a big, old, rusty ship. Why is that? Because he cares about the future of the ocean. He loves it the most. He's a lifelong fisherman. He wants his kids and everyone's kids to see an ocean full of fish. The ocean is giving him so much over his lifetime and I'll put myself in the same category, that we've committed ourselves to serving it, the balance of our days, just to try to find balance in our relationship with her because she's delivering us epic times with our families, sunsets, sunrises, beautiful experiences in life. I, I want to talk a little bit about the data you're able
0: to collect with sharks. I know that these days there's technically a lot of different ways of collecting data from the oceans, but there's something wonderful about just These animals are already going to places, stick a tag on them, they're able to collect data. Talk a little bit about the types of information that's still almost exclusively available through this technique of putting
1: uh, sensors on these moving animals. Yeah, so there is a technology developed, you know, a while back in the early 2000s where you could place these satellite tags on the dorsal fin of larger animals. And every time they stick it out of the water, it beams their location through a satellite into your lab, and the battery lasts for five years. So suddenly we had this opportunity at real-time tracking. The challenge was, how do you get that on a 4,000-pound white shark? Well, you had to have safe access to do that. That's what Osearch created and brought the science community in on and allowed them to then use their own imaginations and say, hey, if I have this sort of access to the animal, what else can we learn? And that's why we have so many research projects because if the challenge is data deficit, you want to get the maximum amount of data you can get from every animal you touch so that you solve the puzzle as quick as possible and affect change as soon as possible and then attack the time component of our biggest challenge.
0: So what are some of the cool, interesting, you know, pieces of technology you've seen? Because now that you're, you're, you know, you're basically... Being a matchmaker, you know, he, hello, yeah. hello, scientists meet shark, hello, shark meet scientists. You, you get to see firsthand the latest
1: technology. Like, what are some of the cool toys they have to play with? Okay, so we use four different types of tags. We use the spot tag we mount on their dorsal fin that everyone follows on the OSearch app or at osearch.org. That's the real time tracking device. Okay. That battery lasts five years. We then also insert a, an acoustic tag into the belly of the animal. And then every time that animal swims by these sensors or receivers that are mounted up and down the East Coast has to come within a few hundred yards of them. So it's really only good for local area type stuff. Right. But that will pick up their location uh, for 10 years. That's a 10 year battery. And that's really good because you can see animals, once they go back to a beach to hunt for seals in their summer and fall feeding aggregations up in the Northeast and Atlantic Canada, they go back to the same spots every year. So you pick them up every year. Right. Um, and you know, they're doing fine and you know, they're returning. And then you can start to move those little receivers around and see like, which part of the beach do they like more than the other? It's like a real local fine scale thing. Whereas the spot tag, the one that's on its dorsal fin, that's large scale right anywhere in the world type movements then we okay. put another tag on them that stays on them for a year and that um describes how much they're diving and then coming back up to the surface we call that a dive profile it shows what part of the water column they're using are they hanging out at the surface or are they going deep seen fascinating things with their these animals dive down to a thousand meters regularly oh yeah um and uh and then Occasionally, we'll use these really sophisticated kind of twenty-five or thirty thousand-dollar tags that collect all this biometric information. They might have a sonar built into it to see what it can see, or even a camera. And those go on the animal usually for twenty-four to forty-eight hours, and they pop off, and you got to go find them. And so, those four th- things are kind of the most forward-thinking suite of tagging equipment that develops the data around their movements and their use of the water column. Maybe even if you have a camera on it, you might see how they try to feed or ambush a little bit. And And then we go from there into a whole suite of toxicology projects. So we were talking about how big the white shark's range is. And if the white shark is doing well, then the system is doing well. So white sharks are at the top of the food chain. That means they're called a, what they're called a bioaccumulator. little bitty fish eats some plastic or t- something toxic. A bigger fish eats that. A bigger fish eats that. A seal eats that. And then the white shark eats it at the top of the food chain. So all, all the nasty stuff will be in there. All of the toxins pass up to the white shark. So now we have these detailed descriptions of the toxicology of the animal, and we can see the toxicology of the whole system and how bad it is or maybe even be able to isolate what the problem or region of the world is so that we can then address that problem. If it's something running off land or fertilizer or something like that, that's affecting the seals, which is then getting in the sharks. It allows you to connect the dots. So there's some awareness to affect change. Um, We're seeing plastics in all the animals. Yeah, We're seeing mercury levels that are 40 times what would kill a human. And the white sharks seem to be fine. How do they do that? Interesting. Um, There's then a whole nother um, set of programs that are for human health where we're getting the bacteria off the animal and the teeth, tongues and gum of the animal. I mean, think about this. The scientists were like, oh, my gosh, I could get bacteria off the tooth of a live white shark for the first time ever or the tongue or whatever, any any part of its body. So that that bacteria is being used for a couple of things. Number one, we've identified the bacteria that's in the mouths of our white sharks off the East Coast in Atlantic Canada across the region. We've then been able to identify what is the most effective antibiotic to fight that. Because if people survive the initial encounter, the very few white shark encounters that occur, loss of limb and death typically then would occur due to a runaway infection. Because the doctors, the doctors don't know what the infection is and they're trying different antibiotics and they can't get it right and then it's too late. So what we now do is we can immediately inform, hey, doctor off of X part of the world, this is the bacteria that's in the mouth of your white sharks. We've tested 20 antibiotics against it in our lab. This one seems to be the most effective, you know, if you want to try to attack this infection fast.
0: Interesting, interesting. the 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 power of data never never uh, ceases to amaze me. While you're out there, um, I I recognize you probably have had run-ins with other data collectors, which includes governments and various types of you know armies around the world. What's the
1: interactions like
0: with those two entities out there? <laughs>
1: well, that depends on where you are. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> um, and we've had the privilege of working all over the world. You know, when you're in places where it's less developed. You know, you're getting a lot of boardings for maybe they need something or they want something. Right. You know, right. but generally speaking, we have a whole team of scientists from that country when we're there and they're talking to them in their local language. Like when we go to a region, we're enabling the local scientists. We don't like roll in with our science team and say, here boys, here's how you do it. Uh, we, what we do is we say, Hey, we are offering our ship to come into your region. I have three scientists on my staff. I have my chief scientist, Dr. Bob Huter. The guy's a legend. If you Google him, he is the man in North America. Uh, my chief veterinarian is Dr. Harley Newton. She's the best in the business I've ever worked with. You know, she used to work at the New York Aquarium and WCS and Disney and that sort of stuff. And then my data scientist is John Taminsky. These three scientists We'll say they'll reach out, for example, we're planning our next big puzzle now, which is to move over to solve the puzzle of the Mediterranean white shark in the coming years. So what that team is doing is they're building out a team of about 30 scientists from the UK across Western Europe and into the Mediterranean so that we enable the local science to come up. So because they're the stakeholders that'll be there when we're done with our work to make sure that the pub the papers are published, which my team drives to the end. If we're gonna give you millions of dollars of ship time, you will publish in a timely manner or that data set will be leveraged by another scientist because our great grandchildren got no time, right, for lollygagging around. And we will publish in a prompt manner and we will get that into the hand of policymakers. We will communicate it about it at scale to millions of people about what we've learned and why it's important. And if any sort of, you know, policy may or may not need to be changed. Sometimes we learn things and we're like, hey, we learned this is the birthing site, but they're doing pretty good. So under the current level of pressure, we seem fine. You know, some some are, are more dire when you get into areas where the population of white sharks is struggling more. So Um, it's, it's great working with governments, the best government we ever worked with the most, the most organized, the most fair, the most thorough was Canada. DFO. Um, the most corrupt, um, we've worked all over the world, Brazil, Ecuador, Chile. I mean, all of Central America, pick a place. The most corrupt, difficult place we've ever worked is Massachusetts in the United States of America. It's far more than anywhere else we've ever worked. Um, and so it depends on sometimes they'll just shut you down because some bro, a lot of times what happens is when O-Search is moving around and we're getting these big teams of scientists, if there's some old boy or old girl in that region who was the kind of winning at this little individual game and they have a lot of influence, they'll end up controlling a lot of the money and permitting. And other scientists, when we come in, if we're bringing up 30, or 40 young scientists because they don't want to collaborate with them, will use their influence to prevent us from getting permits because they don't want all those other young scientists passing them by. And they don't want to collaborate because if they can't do it by themselves, they'd rather not see it done at all until after they retire.
0: So you learned how to wrangle scientists in a sort of diplomatic and also kind of business leader way. This is a this is a rare skill because scientists are notoriously difficult to wrangle. It was
1: the most the most difficult thing in our journeys had nothing to do with figuring out how to catch four thousand pound white sharks. It's the scientists. Oh. It, 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 it was the. The ethics in the science space, it was the corruption in the science space, it was the old boy network of the science space. Now, those were battles we fought in 2007, 8, 9, 10, right? We're we're now the player, right? We've done 45 expeditions around the world. We've published 80 peer-reviewed papers. We've, like the Atlantic coast of our east coast of the United States, when we started our work 10 years ago, it was the least understood white shark population in the world. And we're done now, and it's by far the most. And in some of these other populations, they've been studying the white sharks and poking things at them with primitive methods for 40 years. I, I want to
0: talk a little bit about the importance and funding of your organizations. It seems to me that the organization is important enough to be funded outside of just private donations, or is there some type of freedom that, that exclusively relying on the private donations affords you?
1: Oh, this has been the hardest part of my journey, and I've never really been that transparent about it. I wanted to build an enterprise that mostly could leverage companies like Ulysses Nardin that were socially responsible organizations that wanted to fund work and make it part of their brand uh, because it was good for the planet and it was good for business. And so I set out to really kind of develop uh, an, an organization that had a philanthropic component, which we have but also had this ability to get companies to get involved in philanthropy by, by delivering them value and the social license to operate. And the money part has been the hardest part. Primarily, we've been funded in the past mostly by you know, our corporate partners, You know people like Ulysse Nardin, Costa Sunglasses, Yeti Coolers, SeaWorld. These companies have been all supporting us for over decades, right? right. They're real. They, they walk the walk. And and then the philanthropic side, I've always been so bad at, man. You know, I took I grew up in a really entrepreneur. My father, super entrepreneur, my mom, we delivered meals on wheels on the weekend. So I came from this dinner table about like solving the unsolvable problem, building the enterprise, and do good. The do good is where the, the real fulfillment comes from. That was my household. And <clears throat> I think OSERC is really just a manifestation of my parents and my area of passion, which is the ocean. And uh Oh gosh, I started my dad died recently. I just forgot what the question was. What was the question? No, I, I
0: lost my dad too. I know it feels like I was just basically talking, you were talking about your mission of wanting to work with smaller companies that have this social interest. As yeah, opposed so to, yeah, yeah, I wanted
1: to do it different, right? I didn't want to do it the old way. I wanted to open it up. I, didn't, I don't think that we're going to create an abundant future from the ivory tower. I, I believe it has to be like by the people for the people. And, and and the people need to be in it. And all the science was kept so separate. And we will publish a paper and tell you what we must do later. You know, and s- instead of like, hey, guys, here's what's going on. Here's what we're learning right now. What do you think about it? You know, here's how it's shaping up. We got to figure this out together so we can all make it happen. You know, so I was coming at it from a totally different angle than the ivory tower. And I didn't know what the box was supposed to look like. I just knew that we, if we didn't bring back the large sharks, our kid weren't going to see an ocean full of fish, maybe no air, maybe no water, no life on land. So anyway, we tackled that problem. We built an enterprise to do it. And it's a mixture of the, of the, of the philanthropic, the business. And then quite frankly, I've had to start another business to try to you know, earn money so I can cover the shortfalls
0: myself. Understood. Understood. One more question before uh, we end this conversation, Chris. I want to thank you for uh, all the interesting stuff that you shared with me, and this has to do with the uh, interesting element with animals and ethics. And I'll give you a little bit of background here, and then you can sort of understand where I'm coming at. It really has to do with the justification that the work you do is so important. Um, handling the animals and disrupting them a little bit is worth it. I, I went to high school to LA Zoo. And zoos have always been this weird place because on the one hand, you know, you can look at it and be like, this isn't the natural environment for the animals. They can't necessarily love being in these small cages. On the other hand, like you said, if the public doesn't see these creatures and understand that they're cool and require preservation and interest, uh, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. So explain a little bit from your perspective why it's a good idea to do what you're doing, even though it involves, yes, tagging animals and picking them out of the water for a little bit and then putting them back because the greater benefit uh, is so much is so much more than, you know,
1: occasional discomfort for some animals. Talk a little bit about that. This particular conversation has gotten totally out of hand and common yep. sense has been completely lost. This is where the fringes have steered the general public in a super wrong <laughs> direction. Look, these places... Number one, most of the animals that are there, they end up rescuing and they can't live in the wild. If they've been there and it was before that, they learn about the health of these animals so that we can then save the ones in the wild. Yep. Otherwise, we don't know how to do that. Right. Finally, what is most important, which goes back to this awareness topic we brought up at the top of this conversation, is when people go to these places, They fall in love with the animals. They learn about the animals. They would never be able to see one in their life in the wild. And so suddenly they care about the ones in the wild and they want to look after or they get involved with a group that looks after leopards or they get involved with a group that looks after lions or elephants because they were exposed to them. And they learned about them and they understood how important they are so that they want to save the ones in the wild. It is not more complicated than that. I, I agree. I'm just happy you said and it. You know, the I- hilarious thing is there's all these things going on in the background too. Like People don't understand that there's a whole species survival program in the background of all these zoos that is bringing back the animals that were the most close to extinction. We are Uh, learning how to breed all these animals. So if there is a catastrophic event in the wild, we can replant them. And also when the the same people who give these organizations a hard time have a big problem in the wild, who do you think they call? (laughs) They call the zoos, they call the aquariums. The very people who are trying to undermine them somehow are so disconnected that when they have a problem in the wild, they call them and ask them for help.
0: I'm gonna tell you something funny. You're gonna laugh. I took my son to the zoo not too long ago. He's five, and we've been before. And outside the zoo, there were protesters, and I was like, "What are they protesting about? These like union workers?" No, these people. I'm, I'm not even. I'm not even making this up. They were protesting that the elephant was depressed. They literally. That was the protest. The elephant is depressed now. The zoos do about as good of a job, you know these animals can 't just go back to the wild they weren 't like plucked out of the African savanna or something like that, and I was just like thinking probably very similar to what you're thinking It was like oh my god i'm I, you know again i'm I'm someone who is, is 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 quite liberally minded in these things, but when I see stuff like this, i'm like these poor misguided souls like they need to be on an OSERT ship doing some good work or something like that they they should not be here uh standing protesting like what like
1: what on earth are they doing? they have no They're not in touch with reality at all, right? It's (laughs) It's crazy. It's such a distraction from getting the real work done. And poor them. They have been misled, you know? Yeah. It's just like, what do I say to my son? It's the weirdest thing. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and so it's, again, it goes back to the fringes. What I'm trying to build is the 800-pound gorilla in the middle that has so much inertia that we can suck them in to the middle because all the progress is in the practical center. What can we do? Not what do you want to do? What can we do to turn this around and not negatively affect all of the parties that are working in this environment? And oh, by the way, make sure we can all eat some food. You know, so it's really, I think one of the craziest things that's happened in recent times is with all the level of communication, somehow or another, we've people have been convinced to abandon their common sense. And if people could just step back and just use a little street smarts, <laughs> don't get too confused. Don't let someone complicate it. You I, know, I agree. It's, it's just, it's basic. Like, yes, yes, I understand. I feel what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But if we can handle these few, we can save them all.
0: I, I, I agree. And it's wonderful to hear how you've been bringing people together with Osearch. Chris, where can people learn more about
1: you and Osearch on the internet? Uh, they can go to osearch.org and you can develop um, download the Osearch free app. You can track all the sharks in real time. You can see our free educational program there for kids and all the science. Also, you know, the Osearch YouTube channel and all the social handles across Facebook, Instagram. Twitter and TikTok, you know, then you're going to be if you get on the social handles, you'll be in the O-Search world in real time. When we're on the water and we tag one, you're there. You know, so that's what we really try to do is bring science, education and exploration into the now because everyone's in the now now.
0: It's a very cool tool. I recommend you do that. Uh, this has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Chris Fisher. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a com.